0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, I think most of you remember this man and this testimony before the United States Congress back a couple of years ago. Dad, I'm sitting here today in the U.S.
1: Capitol talking to our elected professionals. Is proof that you made the right decision 40 years ago to leave the Soviet Union and come here to the United States of America in search of a better life for our family. Do not worry I will be fine for telling the truth.
0: That, of course, was Lieutenant Colonel, now retired, Alexander Vindman, testifying. Uh, He is out with a new book, "Here Right Matters, an American story that has just rocketed to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And we're happy to be joined by him on the Bulwark podcast today. So uh, good morning, Colonel. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on, Charlie. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, I want to talk about the book. There's a lot going on, but as a former senior member of the National Security Council, I have to ask you what your thoughts are watching the events unfolding in Afghanistan today. Because you worked in the White House, you worked at some of the higher reaches of foreign policy. You have a long career in the military. You are a veteran of Iraq. Just your your, your thoughts about what we're seeing. Sure, I, I
1: guess I'd start with the fact that it, uh, it's on a personal level quite heartbreaking uh, watching uh, these tragedies unfold in real time um and asking you know was it worth it uh, i i was a, a veteran of the iraq war um but there were i mean i guess i it, it, in certain ways it's the war on terror and, and I, I was part of that war Uh, in Iraq rather than Afghanistan. And I I asked myself if it's worth it. And the conclusion I come up with is is nuanced, as you could imagine. Um, The first thought was, you know, maybe not. But then I realized that we spent 20 years in in Afghanistan and provided hope for millions and millions of people uh, and some prosperity and some peace, some respite from, uh, you know, what would have been a, you know a, an ongoing tragedy in in Afghanistan so on a human level uh, I take a little bit of solace from that I also take some solace from the fact that we were beating uh, back Al-Qaeda and, and um the Taliban but mainly Al-Qaeda on on uh far seas um abroad and did not give them an opportunity to attack the United States that was a respite for the United States so I I take some solace from that too but I also you know, it's hard to discount the human toll, the the blood and the treasure that could have been um, saved and uh, spent to advance maybe more direct US interests, meeting challenges uh, domestically. And then at the same time, you know, being better postured to, to face off against my uh, area of expertise, great power competition, you know, Russia and China as adversaries. So that's the, the, the nuanced, you know, I guess view and the last thing I'll mention uh, is, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to judge that Biden did the wrong thing by withdrawing. I think in a lot of ways, the, the a complete collapse without a U.S. backbone, in some ways, validated the notion that more time, more treasure, more blood would have been for naught. Uh, and the only thing we would be able to fall back on is the fact that, yes, we were fighting uh, terrorists overseas and we we're providing some security for Afghanistan. But how long can we do that for in reality, when we face enormous challenges uh, uh, around the globe? The, the where this where this administration fall fell deeply short is probably on execution. And this could have could have been done in in so much a better way where we didn't have um, a tragedy unfolding with the folks that helped us in in Afghanistan. You know, the translators, the the contractors, all those folks that were part of the same fight uh, left left behind. That seems to be coming together in a little way now. Uh, I'm sure we can't avoid all tragedy, um, but it seems like there's a plan in place to at least uh, extract those folks and, and bring them to safety. So we'll see how it unfolds.
0: Well, one of the themes of your book that, that I certainly took away from it was, um, you know, the deep professionalism of so many people uh, who are working in the foreign policy area in the in the military, uh, the amount of talent, the amount of information, which then raises the question, how could they have gotten this so wrong? How yeah. could, you know, the world's greatest military with all of the resources of the US government botch something that... Objectively speaking, is one of the most important decisions that we would have to make. How, how, did, how did this happen? I mean, you—you've been in the White House, you've been in the military, you've sat in the room, you've been in the tank, yeah. uh, where where the generals, you know, just discuss high strategy. And I'm sure you've thought about this. What 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 went wrong? Do you think? You know, a Sun Tzu quote comes
1: to mind: uh, "Strategy without tactics is a slow road to victory. Tactics without strategy is a sure road to defeat." And I think really uh, this has to fall and accountability has to fall on the, the senior leadership uh, that fell short, uh, whether it was in providing the best military advice the the council required to indicate that this mission couldn't be successful, uh, in some cases, false reporting on progress. I, I think you're you're ab- absolutely right. And I think it comes through in the book that I have, you know, the, the highest esteem for the military and the public servants that serve this country. But the leadership sometimes uh, doesn't, isn't necessarily reflective of the institution. Uh, there is a kind of leader that seems to, to uh, emerge, uh, you know, a risk averse leader that doesn't necessarily make mistakes that would, uh, that nothing ventured, nothing gained, you know, a, a leader that potentially, you know, sees an opportunity to kind of take a middle ground Uh, And not, you know, not not kind of a risk career risk post post military post government uh, prospects and offer the the frank counsel that's required. And I think for me, Mm -hmm. it's hard to understand because I think you could tell, you know, from reading the book, from from my testimony and from the fact that I've been dragged into the public is that I've never been really. You know, fearful of that. I've been try- I've tried to do it in a savvy manner, respectful manner. But if something mm-hmm. needed to be said, uh, I would. I would say. It. And I don't know if that's reflected in the the you know senior most echelons of, of the officer corps and folks that I know and worked with. Uh, it's a it's a it's a really hard judgment. But somewhere somewhere along the way, we need to be introspective about our shortfalls and ensure you know we don't let this happen again uh, when the stakes are even higher potentially.
0: So you, uh, I want to play for you a soundbite because um, you're you're a serious man in a country that sometimes seems to be uh, that feels quite unserious. That uh, sometimes we're dealing with uh, with high public policy, but uh, the, the reality is the decisions are made by petty politicians and by by voters and commentators who have their own ag- agendas. And I, I just have to throw this in before we get before we before we go back into uh, in, into what happened with with the president, Ukraine, and. And in impeachment. I don't know whether uh, many people caught uh, Sean Hannity last night. Uh, I think this must have been on his radio show. He's talking about Afghanistan. And this may be the single worst juxtaposition ever, including the worst product placement ever. Let's play Sean Hannity last night. How would you like to be in Kabul today as an American and you can't get to the airport? Where are you thinking your life is headed? You're one of those family members. I bet you're not sleeping. I, I don't even think my pillow can do it. Mypillow.com. That's where I go. I fall asleep faster. I stay asleep longer. No. There's going to be a lot of sleepless nights for so many of our fellow Americans. We got to get them home. So he's talking about people fearing for their lives in Kabul, and he works in a My Pillow guy ad. Alex, Damn. you can't make this stuff up. You know. <laughs> uh
1: yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I think <laughs> Hannity's uh uh ratings have been falling anyway, right? He's in certain ways uh less competent and um uh less I don't know, less radical. I don't know. That that whole group of Hannity, um uh what's her face? Um Laura Ingram. Ingram. Yeah, hmm. Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson, I mean, they're pretty they're pretty
0: uh sorry bunch. Well, I want to talk about that, what their role in, in your story is as well. Um, so let, let's let's start. Let's go to to the book, because the the, the book is uh, it, it, it's got several different layers. It is a quintessential American immigrant story you described coming here when you were four years old from the Soviet Union. It's a story of your military career. And for people who, who don't know, who think you just came out of uh, nowhere, uh, you'd been on a twenty. You had a twenty-year uh, career where your rise was, I think it's fair to say, uh, meteoric. Uh, you you'd, you know served overseas in Korea in the Iraq War, where you were awarded a Purple Heart after being wounded in action. You were a military attaché in Moscow and Ukraine, and then you find yourself in the in the NSC. And so, let's get right into this because. This all centers around the July twenty fifth, two thousand nineteen phone call between uh, the president of the United States and the president of Ukraine. And you were the you were the uh, director for Eastern Europe, the, you know, in, in Russia and Russia in the White House's National Security Council. So you're listening in on this call, and you knew right away when this call began. That something wasn't right. You had a feeling that this wasn't going to go well. So tell me about that call.
1: Sure. So I was certainly apprehensive uh, going into that phone call. It had been on again, off again in terms of scheduling. Uh, Ambassador Bolton, then then National Security Advisor, uh, had basically tried tried to you know kill the phone call, pull it, uh, not recommend it move forward. It, the fact that it landed. Um, was uh in certain ways a bit of a surprise and uh, I guess I could recall thinking well maybe there's some gravy here maybe you know ambassador bolton's wrong maybe this will you know, this could could land okay and then uh, it also didn't land you know usually you have congratulatory phone calls occur the day of or the day after whatever the event is that drove the congratulatory phone call it landed several days later turns out that it was because um, gordon soundland um and uh kurt volker and and andre yermark uh, Zelensky's um now presidential uh head of presidential administration and uh, mick mulvaney it kind of all worked out this 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 drug deal as drug uh deal. Bolton, yeah, drug deal as ambassador bolton described it to get the ukrainians to open an investigation into the president's political rivals uh rival uh, uh the one that he intuitively guest assessed would be the biggest danger going to 2020. Uh, so I guess you, you could, that's to, to Donald Trump's credit that, that he saw the danger early and then uh, initiated a, you know, continuing enterprise for the subsequent, you know, year and a half, two years to, uh, to steal an, ele- an election. He was the one that tried to steal it. And I felt it in my bones immediately. I mean, I heard the tone from uh, President Trump and it wasn't anything like the first one where he was kind of a little bit, you know, uh, he, he was peppy and and hop, happy. He was low energy on this phone call, and I thought, okay, well, at minimum, at, at first hearing just the tone that we weren't going to be able to bring this relationship uh, to where we where, I thought uh, we could be adding uh, aiding U.S. national security interests. Uh, but as the phone call c- uh, continued, it went from you know. Uh, not helping U.S. national security interests to actively undermining U.S. national security interests and the president articulating a plan to steal an election.
0: You, uh, afterwards, you walked into your brother's office and you said, you know, if this ever gets out, the president is going to be impeached. So, I mean, at the, at the moment, hearing the president say, you know, but, uh, you know, you, you can do us a favor. Um, it hit you as you heard him say that that this was potentially a big deal.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it's frankly, it's kind of in, in hindsight, it's a little bit astonishing uh, that I had that. Uh, and it wasn't even precinct like that it was going to happen, but that I captured the gravity of the moment that, you know, this had been such a, an overreach, such an abuse of presidential power, that if it became public, the president would be impeached. I had no, and you know, I had, uh, I re- ended up reporting my concerns through channels, never thinking that it was going to be uh, g- going to be public. But of course, it did become public, and the
0: president was impeached for, for an abuse of power. So I, th- th- there are a couple of things that, that surprised me in, in the book, in, inclu- including this, you, you, you get it. There was no recording, or at least we don't believe there was a recording of, of the phone call, uh, but there was this, this transcript and you had a chance to, to look at the, at, look at the transcript. And you said at, at that point, I had no idea, of course, that the transcript could one day be made public, but I can say now that the version that was released was not fully accurate. So do we really still not know exactly what president, former president Trump said to the president of Ukraine? I mean, I know what was said uh, and it's in the, in the congressional
1: record, uh, what was said. Um, And it's possible like the actual, you know, revisions to the transcript are somewhere in president, presidential records. Really. It's important to understand that, you know, there is no uh, recording of the call. I think my understanding is that after Watergate, they stopped, they halted recordings. And what you do have is kind of like a real-time transcript that comes through. And um, it's not entirely 100% accurate in, in any case. And in this case, it was particularly important that it was. And, um, you know, w- one of the reasons I take I took copious notes in my, my own personal notebook is that I could make sure I could uh, – to make the corrections – that were missed in in the you know the transcript as it was being taken down so I, I attempted to include a couple of key omissions including this reference to burisma because what that to me indicated was that you know Zelensky was prepped he knew exactly what he would have to deliver on you know an investigation with wrongdoing per, uh, pertaining to burisma this firm that hunter biden you know it was uh, was on the board of uh in exchange for a white house meeting and then a, a release of whole uh, release of um, military aid so those were we we do know what, what it is now um i've i've tried to correct the record both physically on the document and then subsequently uh you know in the in the congressional record so i think we we're we're in good shape uh on that transcript now
0: so it's it's extraordinary to read again because you know so much has happened and it's sort of easy to to, to gloss over. But it is extraordinary to read again your your account of uh, Rudy Giuliani's um, operations in in the Ukraine, trying to discredit the uh, the U.S. ambassador, uh, undermine our policy. The fact that at, at one point um, the the uh, the Department of what was it, the Office of Management and Budget uh, put a hold yeah. on you know crucial military aid to Ukraine. I mean this was this was a really big deal, uh, that you had military aid to uh, one of our most important allies um, put on hold for political purposes. And you reported, um, and of course, th- this culminated in this phone call, and you uh, reported it in, in up the chain of command. But as you write sort of, <laughs> just kind of dryly, the process did not go the way that I expected. You know, <laughs> what strikes me is that you, you really loved your job at the NSC. Um, and I don't think this is negative to say that you were you you were uh, excited about the prospect of being promoted uh, to uh, to full colonel in the sure. U.S. Army. Um, you you were ambitious. You had a very very successful career. It was a very heady experience, and yet you repeatedly describe your decision to testify uh, against the president as an easy decision, as one that you didn't agonize over. Although you had to know that it put it all at risk, so describe for me why it was so easy to decide to go and testify when so many other people in the administration just, you know, couldn't bring themselves to ever do it. So
1: you know, it's interesting that the way you you uh, I guess phrase that question is uh, on one hand it, it, there's an element of kind of personal ambition and wanting to continue to advance and other on the other hand was duty and what i think uh, my my simple calculations uh were to put my duty above my own personal kind of uh ambition uh and i'm just thinking through it because it was you 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 phrased the question so wonderfully mm-hmm. that is an awesome thing that i could i could just kind of embrace that i i set aside my own personal ambitions to do what i thought was right and that's what i want to train uh, teach my daughter to do and that's what i think you know, our our leaders in in the military, our leaders in government, should be doing. And I was going to do what was what I thought was right and what I could live with. And in this simple case, I you know the the decision to report it was was in fact super easy. I went it, it that time it took me to kind of you know report it was the time it took me to walk across the street from the West Wing to my third floor office in the executive office building you know, and walk into, uh, in, into the, the legal offices. That's it. There was no like pausing and deliberating along the way. And uh, at that point I may have, uh, I certainly perceived, you know, the risks of, of, uh, per, you know, going down this road uh, to my tenure at the white house, which I, which I treasured every day was kind of like, you know, uh, a little bit awe-inspiring that I was working in the, in the hallowed halls of, of uh, the NSC in the white house. But the, the, the more difficult decision in certain ways was, entering you know the public uh, consciousness by t- uh you know t- accepting a subpoena to testify i guess i really in fact had the option if i wanted to exercise text- it to hide behind like so, like many other people did behind the president's uh, dictate to not testify or not cooperate and maybe in that way even advance uh you know uh, like so many other people did they advanced like my fellow director, uh, Chris Miller uh, mm-hmm. at the NSC for CT, advanced to be the acting secretary of defense. But I just wasn't going to do that. I was not going to sacrifice my uh, you know, 20 years of service and an oath to, to defend the Constitution against uh, uh, foreign and domestic enemies uh, for, for personal gain, I guess.
0: So you had two different, you had two career tracks though um, simultaneously. One, of course, was the the, um, the your your position in the NS in, in the NSC, but you were also still an active member of the military, and you knew that this might jeopardize your position working in the White House. But it's very clear from your book, though. That you were taken by surprise by the fact that it also ultimately derailed your military career. Uh, so talk to me about that a little bit, because um, you know what's, what really comes through in, in the book is with your expectation that the army would have your back, and in the end they didn't, and you had to make the decision to retire, which um, was a huge sacrifice. I mean, I just want to I just want to emphasize that you know when, when when people make these these decisions, there's that moment when you were realizing that, you know, you could be a colonel, you could have this very, very prosperous, wonderful, cushy career, um, you know, but you needed to make a different decision. So talk to me about that, that you you kind of knew that your White House career was going to be over. But the what happened to you in the army came as a surprise to you? Is that a fair characterization? That is a very
1: fair characterization. I guess uh, having served in the army, and embrace the the army values uh i expected the army value uh, the army to reflect those values back to me also uh not just kind of in in terms of you know words and uh, and um but also deeds not kind of an expectation There, there was a clear expectation that the army should also live up to the same values that they expect of their their officers and their soldiers and um this is clearly an area where I think the army fell short, n- not just to, to my detriment, not just to kind of the, the detriment of like good order and discipline in in the military. It kind of cast a shadow over how the military was going to behave. Um, but in some part could be justified if it was one officer being sacrificed for the good of the, of the institution. But I think that's, that's that proved hollow in that the president Perceived a weakness, you know, the, the uh, Army and the Department of Defense buckled. He proceeded to parade uh, senior military officers and defense officials out, you know, to uh, after protests were suppressed in the summer of 2020 after George Floyd was murdered. And then, you know, also kind of indicate that he would have military support as he tro- tried to steal an election that he'd lost by kind of a landslide, frankly, 7 million votes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they encouraged, you know, the, the Army's behavior encouraged him. And the last thing I guess I'd mention on this, uh, yeah. Charlie, is just it, you know, in in my case, um, it's it. There was a an, an understanding that like the army may have sacrificed one individual, but it's there's also the perception that it acted politically by remaining quiet and not defending me. So this whole idea of being remaining apolitical is, I think, it, uh, proves a little bit hollow. And at the same time, you have guys like Charlie Flynn, who's, who has, is an, exposed, uh, I don't know him, but by all accounts, an exceptional officer that was elevated to potentially ingratiate uh, with the, the Trump administration because his brother is Michael Flynn, uh, President Trump's general, while my twin brother, you know, and I were were marginalized. And, you know, my twin brother continues to kind of face that stigma, having less than the kind of the most prestigious assignments kind of put, being put out to pasture.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the concerns, of course, is you end up at a um, uh, at a radar station in Alaska. But also, the, what was clear is that uh, they were holding, in, in order to prevent you from being promoted, they were holding up the entire officer promotion list. So it was, yes. you know it was not just you, it was everybody else was put on hold because of the president's vendetta against you. Did you feel kind of, I don't know whether it was the right word, it was responsible that 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 you needed to retire in order to sort of lift the shadow on everybody else as well?
1: Yes, in part, that's, that is in fact true. I, I had every reason to believe that um, as long as my name was on this list, as long as I was um, you know, uh, on active duty, intending to to maintain a military career, the, this list wasn't going to be uh, wasn't going to move forward. It was delayed for months, and now you know there 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 have been some officials that said, "Oh, well, that's COVID or some other reason," but it, the timing is just too convenient. I submitted my retirement paperwork on Wednesday. This this process takes a year. People initiate their retirement a year in advance. Just getting the orders takes months, six months. And they processed it in two days. Once I had my retirement orders, the list came out. That is just too convenient. (laughs) They were were really anxious to get you out the door. Yeah. I mean, well, they were anxious to get me out the door, uh, out of their hair, uh, you know, uh, no longer casting a shadow over over the military and moving this list forward uh, with, you know, hundreds of people that were on it and many hundreds more that weren't on it, but we're trying to figure out what the disposition of their career was. In that same week okay. I learned, um, you know, that was the subject of an of a investigation by the DODIG based on, uh, you know, a completely fraudulent six point memo that indicated supposed wrongdoing, all con- entirely specious. And then uh, that, you know, the, the chief of staff Mark Meadows had called in the secretary of the army and secretary of the defense uh, of defense and
0: berated them, for you know, considering having my name on the list. Amazing. Okay, let's go back to your testimony, that uh, soundbite we played at the beginning of the podcast where you're addressing your, your father. Um, I guess I had not been aware of how fraught that particular issue was for you. In the book, you describe a scene, a family scene, uh, took place during a car ride. You describe it as uh, that was a tough uh, car ride, Uh, because your father, uh, who had immigrated here from the Soviet Union, uh, really did not want you to testify. In fact, was rather adamant about it. I'll just read you the, the paragraph you write. My dad suddenly began arguing with me. I must at all costs, he insisted, avoid testifying against the president. His anxiety blew up and soon he was yelling, support the president, my dad demanded. Do whatever the president wants. Uh, He thought you were taking an uncalculated risk, that you're acting on impulse, placing yourself in a danger you didn't understand. So that's part of the context that I did not understand when I first heard uh, you addressing your dad saying that you were going to be all right. But um, you have you had a very supportive family structure. But talk to me about why your father was so adamant that you. We're not doing um the right thing by testifying against the president. Where did that come from?
1: You know uh, it might not come across, but you know i'm I'm smiling as you talk <laughs> about that uh uh you know, I love my dad he's he's awesome he's you know he has been such a prominent figure in our lives. he's he's eighty nine he's lived a long life and has an enormous wealth of experience, really has a keen. Uh, sense of uh of the world around him even though sometimes it's it's colored by like a um uh misplaced context uh where where a lot of that um understanding comes from you know 47 years in the soviet union but he's he has a keen understanding of power uh he rose to uh, you know to heights in in the soviet system and um he was counseling me from multiple different perspectives one he definitely perceived the risk to my career Two, I think he was also channeling a sense of danger based on, you know, his experiences, what could happen to somebody that speak speaks mm-hmm. out against power in the Soviet Union, the costs would be extremely high, you know, potentially a uh, loss of life, not just for me, but for, you know, for maybe for the, for, for the family and stuff like that. Certainly that would have been the case in the Stalinist era. Um, you know, things have maybe slightly improved in, in the, uh, Khrushchev and, and Brezhnev and uh, later periods, but um, we left in '79 when it was still Bre- Brezhnev uh, was the leader. But um, so I think it was that. I think there was also early on a lack of understanding of the entire context of, of uh, the president's wrongdoing and abuse of power that my dad didn't get because he wasn't privy to all those inf- uh, all that information. And really, I couldn't talk to him about it because it was in public. At so the only mm-hmm. thing I could do was indicate kind of the broad outlines of you know what what, what might happen to prepare him for it, uh, just like I did with my wife. Um, Eugene, my twin brother, had of, of course better situational awareness because he 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 was in, on the N.S.C. He had you know all the clearances. I could have you know deliberative conversations with him, but my dad didn't. And for him, as a uh, you know former Trump supporter, he thought you know this how how is it possible that the president had kind of abused uh his position and uh, uh, being so corrupt and that may not have been all that far off from where i started i was, you know i wasn't necessarily a supporter of the president but i had a kind of a reverence for the office of the president that in in ways uh maybe even blinded me to the to the fact that the president was the driving force behind uh, behind this whole pr- uh, quid pro quo until that phone call before that sure. i thought it was yeah. people trying to yeah. you know to, to serve the president's interests. So that that was the whole scene that, you know, I, I guess I talked about. But your
0: dad, your, your dad was a, you described him as a diehard Trump supporter, which I think would have come as a surprise to people when they, when they were hearing you testify, that he was a, a diehard Trump supporter. And you say that a lot of members of this Russian emigre community became very, very Trumpy. Yes. Why was that? Why is that? Very true. I think uh, it's something that
1: uh, is preyed on, frankly. And, um, exacerbated and inflamed what you have is a uh group of refugees from the uh, com- communist authoritarian regimes that have gone through a trauma uh trauma of uh you know of, uh, the utter failure of communism and and the, and the far left and uh their their means of de- dealing with it is by rejecting uh communism and the left even even if it In the united states it doesn't resemble it it's nothing near you know the there it's it's a lot of uh, pundits talk about you know marxism and communism the book that's on number one right now is american marxism which is a a work of fiction as far as i'm concerned Mm -hmm. uh and it it doesn't it doesn't exist in america we have Mm -hmm. a spectrum of liberal even progressive uh policy prescriptions that are fall well within established parameters for the United States. Okay. But that is rejected by uh, uh, refugees from the Soviet regime from Soviet or communist regimes. and they probably hew too closely to the right and they they're they're further victimized by propaganda, domestic and external. So domestic it's you know it's the it's the trumpy slogans about Marxism, but external, it's Russian money paying for Russian language programming. To propagandize, you know, vulnerable huh. population, and that happens the same thing with the Cuban population, Venezuelan population, you know, uh, mm-hmm. South Asian population in the same way.
0: So let's talk about the the fallout from from your testimony, um, because I'm, I'm I'm sure you were you were braced for criticism, uh, but as you recount in the book, uh, to turn on cable television and see people like, uh, attorney John you or Alan Dershowitz accusing you of being a traitor, uh, or, or watching what was going on, you know, the, the Fox news hosts, who use the phrase that, uh, that, uh, the right wing media led by Fox news was in a rage to demolish my reputation. This was really quite something and it continues. And I just want to get your, just your, 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 thoughts on this. You're, you're someone who, very clearly you, you've served your country. Um, you're clearly a patriot. You have been wounded in your country's service. You did what you thought was right. And the vilification has been truly extraordinary. So, how how is that to bear up under? I, I say this because I, I think that sometimes people think that, well, I saw Alexander Vindman in uniform. Um, you know, he was on television, everything. Uh, what I think they forget is that you're a real person who goes home to you know, your wife and your, your daughter and your dog. And you realize that that and you're being trashed in the most vicious possible way. That's got to take a toll. It's got to be immensely frustrating.
1: Well, I, you know, I tended to be somewhat, uh, kind of analytical and thoughtful. And what I focused on is, you know, I, I could relatively quickly discount these, these, you know, uh, nut, nutty pundits that are looking to, you know, attack me to, for, for ratings, but the, the second and third order effects of that included, uh, magnifying criticism from the American public and, uh, you know putting putting my family and myself in in some sort of danger because that um you know that would would generate uh um you know thre- threats frankly to be speak but i also assessed that this was the tipping point for me no longer being able to to do my job and and, and serve successfully overseas because you have to remember i'm in a very trusted position and um I, i'm serving in hostile environments in russia and part of the calculation for, for them and their security services is this person vulnerable? Is there an approach that we could make to kind of compromise this individual? And certainly our own counterintelligence folks uh, w- would weigh that in us in uh, uh, approving or clearing my assignment to these places. So that was the first thing that I, I uh, clearly, you know, I knew that the cost was going to be not just some words, but in fact, consequences of those words on me being able to serve overseas. And then the other thing that was 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 really sh- striking is that this was, in a lot of ways, out of like you know the the, the Russian playbook or the uh, authoritarian playbook, where the the best that they could do is they couldn't attack the facts, so they att- attempted to attack the character, uh, um, and uh, of the witness, and basically you know, and and the. <laughs> The the interesting aspect of that is that um, they they thought that this would be an effective way to neutralize my factual testimony that they could you know counter accuse me of wrongdoing or or some some character flaws when the president of the United States is probably one of the most flawed characters that we've had in this as a, a national leader maybe in our history I mean so, uh, stacking me up against the president. I can't see how anybody with any kind of uh, w- with any presence of mind could say, well, this guy is, you know, this guy served his country in decades of military service, combat, and then the president that was purely self-serving the entirety of his li- his life. So, uh, it, part of the mission of, of this president is to profit through dividing this nation. That's the part that I, I find hard to swallow. That you have Tucker Carlson, you know Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, you know uh, profiting from this
0: kind of narrative. So, the president is impeached, he is acquitted, and immediately, within a couple of days, was within two days, he fires you and your twin brother from the NSC. But you were expecting that, weren't you? Of course, um, it's a notoriously vindictive. It was a
1: notoriously vindictive administration. In certain ways i was a little bit surprised i didn't i wasn't fired after my public testimony and then of course you know uh, you know think uh, thinking through why it was clear that it was, he was the president was going to wait until after the senate trial and then you know maybe there was a little bit of surprise that the senate trial went editor on wednesday i thought i might be out by thursday but of course everybody knows that firing day was on friday and that's when you know people get fired at the white house by tweet or whatever other means so it made made perfect sense. I I walked out of there, kind of, you know, not carrying in boxes or anything
0: like that. I was, uh, I, and with a sense
1: of relief that I was out of
0: the lion's den. And of course, now the um the the question is, you know, wh- whether you are in fact are all right. I mean, that was you said, "Don't worry, I will be all right." So, are you all right? Um. Maybe not entirely, but
1: I have uh, every reason to believe I, I'll eventually be all right. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do. i'm I'm engaged in some pretty awesome activities. still uh, con- being a public servant or just out of uniform. Uh, i I'm in advocacy for public other public servants that have served this country honorably and per, per, uh, served as guardrails during a particularly disastrous administration. I uh, have been writing extensively on national security issues. I make it a point to um, to address uh, leadership that fails to live up to their values, and I'm continu- going to continue to do that moving forward. Uh, n- you know uh, whether that's directly uh, w- using my own voice or through support to you know vote vets or Republican voters against Trump or Democratic candidates, whatever the case might be. These folks, uh, I'm, I I will not forget. That they uh, imperil in, in, this country and national security, and I'm also working on a doctorate in international affairs from Johns Hopkins. Um, I'm on a uh, think tank as a senior. I'm part of Lawfare, I mm-hmm. um, uh, think a DC-based think tank. Uh, I teach and, and guest lecture. I'm on the board of an NGO, um, the Renewed Democracy Initiative, which is geared on looking for solutions to pr- to make this. Uh, this democracy resilient. So I'm doing all sorts of things. My wife says I have like six jobs now, but yeah. I haven't quite figured out what to
0: do. Yeah, I mean, you have, You also have this New York Times bestselling book. So, I mean, you know, oh, there, there is that. And then, of course, you, you've you you've left out the two most important uh, things that, are, that have happened since. You got a dog. And people yes. ought to know that Alexander Vindman and his wife, Rachel, are dog people. So you got yes. Ace. So tell me about Ace. Ace is
1: a, he's a pandemic puppy, uh, we figured out that he was born, I think the day, uh, of, or the day before I was fired from the uh, White House and, mm. uh, we collected him up. I think it was in, I guess, late March or so. And he's, he's a terrific dog, a year and a half old. He's a German shepherd, Australian shepherd. So he's not as big as, uh, you know, uh, he looks like a German shepherd. He's just not, not as, as massive. Um, and he's, he's a great dog and he's, uh, we have a second dog, a, a lab greyhound, Boots, and that's part of the fam- Boots.
0: Yeah. Well, isn't that the, isn't that the famous line that if you if, if you want a friend in Washington D.C., you, you should get a dog? So, I mean, tr- trading working at the Trump White House for having a dog. I mean, this seems like a significant upgrade in, in lifestyle.
1: Yes, it is. But I know, <laughs> Charlie. I think it should be uh, should be mentioned. You know, I said I was okay, but there's just an enormous amount of unpredictability. Uh, well, where right. it would have been certainty, uh, you know, if I stayed, if I had just kept my mouth shut, I, I would have been a Colonel, uh, you know, I would have mm-hmm. graduated yeah. uh, service college this summer. I would have been able to, to serve in, in high value assignments that would have, you know, I, I think I could have in, uh, contributed to enhancing us national security. I did some pretty fantastic things, including authoring the most critical documents on facing our uh, challenges with regards to Russia that are the documents of record. So I think I could have. Uh, I, that would have been the, the certainty. Now I I don't know what what I want to do, and and I'm a lot more lucky. I'm a lot luckier rather than uh, other whistleblowers that uh, have not been able to land on their feet. And there's really only cost associated with where, uh, you know being a whistleblower. There
0: is no magical Hollywood right. reward or anything like that. It's only cost. You know, and this is this is a very important point, and so I mean, ob- obviously, there's there's, um, you know, there there is the opportunity that you might be able to return to public service at some point. And I mean, if the if uh, if another White House were to call you back um, into into government service, into uh, into, into foreign policy work, uh, you'd be open to that. I think I I might be, but the problem is I I perceive that this you know this
1: administration is both too busy with a full plate, legitimately you know a full plate. Of, uh foreign po- of you know this this is real environment of national security peril uh it has to it hasn't adequately addressed uh the the misdeeds of the past four years so they still have you know we're sh- they're falling short on accountability so that's two major major items all of the d- domestic policy agenda and they're probably too risk-averse in in terms of you know uh wanting me to join Uh, Because that's just going to, you know, why, why invite that on yourself when you have all this work to do? So I don't think that's in the cards for me, unfortunately.
0: Well, it, you, of course, as we all know, we don't know what's in the cards for us. Uh, I, I, I have I have to mention though that it's also interesting watching, uh, and you, you know, she you 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 mentioned your wife Rachel um, extensively in in the book. Uh, the 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 support and the encouragement that she's given you, she has become uh, quite a uh, quite a a prominent um, fixture on on social media as well. Uh, so w- one of one of the benefits of all of this is that um, your your feisty wife is is out there fighting the good fight on a regular basis as well and that's got to be interesting for you to watch that
1: it is she's uh you know i i initially said that she um she was made for twitter but frankly i think twitter was made for her um and it's pretty pretty awesome the way she has she's used both of us in, to a certain extent but we way we, we've used our voices to kind of uh advocate for the things that are important to us you know accountability being one of the most critical uh, areas we we have a pretty darn good family life even with the unpredictability which has been nerve wracking for both of us uh we have a wonderful daughter you know uh the the book is in a lot of ways it's we focused on kind of like you know the some of the most kind of uh the, some of the high points but the book is really about you know fa- our family life uh how how rachel yes. and i met the 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 critical moments in my background that i kind of looking retrospectively uh determined were formative in the person who i was and how i navigated the impeachment that's really you know what what uh it's about it's it's in a lot of ways a very kind of uplifting story so um for your listeners that were thinking about buying american marxism maybe they should buy something that's not not uh fiction and uh you know come out maybe feeling a little bit better about this country because I, I have some perspectives on that.
0: You know, it, it's interesting. It was, as I was reading the book, um, you know, the, the the phrase came, you know, kept coming back to me, you know, this is really the quintessential American story. And then, of course, I... Close the cover and realize that that in fact was the is the subtitle. The book is "Here, Right Matters: An American Story," Alexander Vinman, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Army, retired, um, on the New York Times bestseller list. A fantastic read, and as you point out, not just for uh, the politics and the and the analysis, uh, the extraordinary story of the impeach, the first impeachment of President uh, Trump, and the, the attempt by the president uh, and and his cronies to corrupt the U.S. election, but also uh, just a story of, 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 of service and of moral courage. So, uh, Alexander Vindman, thank you so much for writing the book and thank you for joining me today. I thank you for having me on Charlie. I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.